This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, we hear from a youth activist about what he wants the International Court of Justice to consider when it provides an opinion on climate change. And we look at the fight to get museums and institutions here in Australia to return the bodies of Indigenous ancestors. Bringing our old people home requires us to properly care and look after them. Many we do not know, other more than that they were described as Yaru. Also ahead, we hear from a science fiction author about carving out her own unique space. There were no stories about queer Fijian women flying spaceships. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, more than 100 of Australia's cultural and ethnic organisations have signed a joint resolution to back an Indigenous voice to Parliament, and they're calling for their communities to vote yes in the upcoming referendum on the issue. The voice would provide permanent representation and recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution, but the upcoming referendum vote will decide if the Australian body is created. With almost half of Australians having a parent born overseas, the multicultural vote could be decisive, and both the yes and no campaigns are courting it. The voice is an issue that's close to home for Bella Swan, who has Pacific Islander and also Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage. She's a member of the Pacific Communities Council of Far North Queensland and joins us now. Bella, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Fiji, I understand. Thank you. Yes, I am in Fiji at the moment. Um, Good morning, Bula. Bula, Bula, Bula Vanaka. Um, so before we go into this voice question, I wanted to touch on your quite unique experience in Australia because, as I mentioned, you have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander heritage, but you're also Fijian and Tongan and, and a migrant to Australia. Can you talk about some of your experiences building a home, building your identity when you did move here in, in, to Australia in the 70s, I understand? Yes, we, my parents moved um, myself and my eight siblings to Australia in 1972 with hopes of um, yeah, improving our lives. Australia was the land of opportunity. Um, coming from uh, Fiji, which is a, a British colony, mm. or maybe it had achieved independence at the time, um, it, it, it was uh, an adventure. However, our experiences of, uh, of actually settling in Australia was quite different in terms of um, experiencing for the first time racism. Mm. So that in some cases uh, determined how we lived our lives. And, uh, but it was something that we overcame uh, with education, uh, with the guidance of our parents as well. And uh, the support of our uh, certainly the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities of Far North Queensland, of which we have links to. Oh, well, that's good that you were able to find that space because I know um, in the ABC article that came out today about about some of your experience, it was you also talked about you know finding it difficult to find a find a space you know both within the Pacific Islander um, community and within the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Is that right? Was there a bit of a, a tension there during your experience? There, there was some tension, but it was mainly. Um, you see, I, I know, it sounds uh, coming from Fiji. There was no 
uh, I had no experiences in terms of my color. Mm. Coming to Australia was the first time that I, you know, heard about being black, being a coon, being a boom, and, you know, people making monkey noises at, at me and my siblings. And that was quite a new experience for us. And I know, and, um, oh, sorry, yeah. go, go ahead, Bella. Yes, so um, so that was something that, that we had to overcome. And I think the, 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 the concept of racism is something, well, you know, it, it contributed to a lot of our trauma of acculturation. However, it was something that we have been able to work through after 50 years and, and manage just, um, you know, the, the, the effects of that and how it impacted, you know, how it impacted and impacts on all of our lives both um, as Pacific Islanders and also with, uh, the, you know, the indigenous communities of, of this country. Yes, exactly, Bella, because, because I, those, those experiences um, of racism when you're young can really stay with you for so long, isn't it? I mean, you said it happened 50 years ago, but I, I no doubt believe, you know, I can, or can hear that you still remember the, those incidences. I mean, considering that, and now we're having, I guess, an, another debate on, on the um, status and, and the role of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our politics with the voice to parliament and this referendum coming about. Or have you been um, thinking about those issues of racism and, and um, your experiences as these, these talks about voice to parliament come up? What does, what does this debate mean to you? For me, uh, for me, the voice is embedded. You know, the, the reason for us to have a voice, the the yes campaign to have a voice, I believe is embedded in, in you know in, in the effects of racism. Mm. And um, you know, I believe you know, like for Pacific Islanders and also the Indigenous peoples, you know, we have two very different yet similar perspectives with regard to lifestyle experiences in Australia. For Indigenous people, it is much more than yes or no, or the legal political debate. It's you know, it's it, it's about fairness, equality versus injustice. It's about hope versus despair. It's about healing, you know, versus hopelessness. You know, freedom versus imprisonment, and you know, dignity versus slavery, because. In the 1870s, the Pacific Islanders came to far north Queensland under the blackbirding um, scheme. Mm. And that wasn't a positive experience either. But, you know, for migrants, there's similarities in, you know, with, with the, the indigenous population in terms of our culture, cultural values, beliefs, tradition, because we focus on the, on the collective as opposed to the the white, nuclear-privileged, um, you know, worldview. So, for, so I think for, for migrants, Australia as the, you know, is perceived as the land of opportunity. And, and to be successful in the country, we need to adopt those white-privileged values, you know, cultures and beliefs, the, the accumulation of wealth and resources. And in that, in that acculturation process, I believe a lot of migrants compromise and sacrifice their own values and beliefs, which is not a positive process or a positive way of achieving um, 
a positive acculturation into this country. That's so in- with the voice, yes, yeah, sorry. No, that's interesting. So you see the voice as also, I guess, supporting migrant communities as well. Is that is that right? To allow them to, I guess, have, have a bit more of a connection to their culture. Um, is that right, Bella? Yes, and, and in my experiences, although we have, uh, you know, and I'm also Australian. Mm. Australia is a, is a multicultural country. Often the, the terms of reference are of how we experience multiculturalism. The, the terms of reference are determined by white privilege. Mm. Um, and, and you are now part of these, um, you know, more than 100 uh, cultural and ethic, ethnic organizations here in Australia um, to sign um, the joint resolution backing the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Um, do you think there is uh, this common view amongst um, the Pacific community? Do they also support um, this Indigenous um, Voice to Parliament as well? The majority that I have spoken to, and in my um, in my uh, role as you know a volunteer on the Pacific Communities Council of Far North Queensland, is, um, is 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 that they don't know or understand the reason for the voice. Most of our Pacific Islander nation people are shocked that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not recognised in the in the supreme law of of Australia in terms of the constitution. Because from where we where we come from, the traditional owners are the true custodians of the land and the and the constitution. Um, say for example in Fiji, you know, the Itaoke, mm. they have a, a, a special um, and unique role in Australia as the traditional owners, as the custodians of this land. They have native title, they have a thing called uh, the Bolanikawabula. Uh, and when I speak to um, my Pacific uh, people and say that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are not recognised in the Australian Constitution, they're quite shocked and quite sad about that. And you are in Fiji at the moment, um, Bella. Um, is there an awareness of, of what's going through in Australia now with regards to the voice um, referendum? What are, what are the reactions of people in Fiji where, where as you said, there is so much um, prominence given to Itoke um, people there? It's, uh, well, you know, like the, the very few, like within my own family circles where we've discussed this, it's, it's shock and, and sadness because, and, and it's like, uh, um, they don't understand it. How could that be? Because also, the colonization of Fiji by the British was quite different to that of Australia. Mm. How so? Well, uh, the, the British were the British were the ones that set up, you know, that in in conjunction with the, the chiefs of Fiji, they set up the Great Council of Chiefs, mm. acknowledging the role of the traditional roles. The, the cultural values and beliefs of the Fijian people, and embedded that in the law of, uh, you know, of Fiji, the native titles, and as I said, the Volani Kawambula, the setup of, uh, you know, the different um, for once provinces and states within Fiji. It ultimately recognises the rights of indigenous people in this country, 
And I believe the same would be for Samoa and Tonga, the Cook Islands. So the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not recognised in Australia is quite confusing. Yes, I mean, it is quite an outlier if you do look at, at I guess, all the all the members of PIF, the Pacific Islands Forum. Um, most of them do have, as you as you've been outlining, uh, Bella, some sort of representation um, for for indigenous issues, some sort of body that that handles those issues. Um, even you can see, you know, French French uh, territories like New Caledonia have have um, uh, chiefly councils that that are there to advise on indigenous issues. I mean, it is quite an outlier. In, in Australia. But I wonder, Bella, you're there in Fiji at an interesting time where the Great Council of Chiefs have just has just been reconvened last week. I, I, are there parallels, do you think, with what we're seeing here in Australia and what's happening in Fiji? You know, I I, I haven't lived here for, for over 50 years. Mm. My, my understanding is that, and, and other people are, are, are experts on this, I'm not. I'm I'm not in a position to, to talk about that, but to my understanding growing up here in the first place was that the Great Council of Chiefs was established to recognize, recognize specifically the rights of the indigenous peoples in, 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 in the parliament, in the government. Mm. Yes. And, um, and, you know, perhaps the similarities are there in terms of the Great Council of Chiefs and having the voice in Parliament for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to be able to speak, but it's 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 quite different for me in ways because um, where where it we believe it is it is a, a normal and natural right of Fijians to have the voice in Parliament through the Great Council of Chiefs. There is a lot of opposition in Australia to that. Yes, indeed. And, and as you mentioned, Bella, just before we go, uh, you know, you said some um, people uh, in the Pacific Islander community here in Australia um, are not, not aware or perhaps don't know the details of the voice referendum. Um, do you have something you tell them? What's the best way of explaining the referendum to, to those people who, who do want to know more? You know, I believe that community education is, um, you know, through uh, through our different uh, community groups, the Pacific Diaspora, would be one of the best vehicles in which to to deliver this message. You know, of of um, the positive aspects of of the voice to Parliament. There are very uh, what could be significant similarities of the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia with that of uh, people who have migrated to Australia from the Pacific Nations. Mm. And a lot of that is about, um, you know, as I said before, the, 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 the experiencing the trauma of racism and how Pacific Islander people could manage that better, have a voice as well in terms of how they, they experience life how they deal with life in, in a white, like I said, a white privileged society. And I think having that uh, supporting the voice proposal would also see Pacific Islanders benefiting, benefiting from that, being able to, to, to actually talk about how they struggle with the current, um, 
the current systems in Australia, having the systems in Australia recognise the collective worldview, the collective values and beliefs of Pacific nations. And, you know, and that also means that we, you know, I believe that through, uh, through the churches, the, you know, similar to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, mm. there's great spirituality amongst the Pacific nations. And through, um, you know, and Pacific nations have had, uh, uh, what do you call that, have had a long history, a long association with the indigenous communities way back 70, 80 years through the early um, Uniting Church Methodist ministries where there were the, the programs where the early ministers came and um, and lived amongst the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people mm. I'm aware of in Cape York in the Northern Territory. And it's through those ministries, I believe, that they can, um, what do you call that? They can talk about the positive aspects of the voice. And, mm. you know, especially for me, it's it's also about, um, and having trained, uh, having trained ethno-specific people, talking about, um, you know, unpacking the trauma of racism, because you know, as you know, as as I'm aware, in my I'm I'm a social worker by profession. Is the increase mm. of Pacific Islander people, you know, in unemployment, in prisons, in in youth justice? Yes, it, it does seem like a, um, some a, quite a number of parallels there between the experiences of Pacific Islander people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island, uh, Islander people here in Australia. Bella, thank you so much for outlining your your views and and your thoughts on on the voice to um, Parliament here on Pacific Beat. Thank you, thank you for for the invitation. That was Bella Swan, a member of the Pacific Communities Council of Far North Queensland, speaking to us from Fiji. Pacific Beat. International museums and foreign institutions have been lashed by a peak Indigenous group in Western Australia's north for not returning human remains. It's an issue with parallels to many Pacific countries too, with thousands of remains taken from islands during colonial times, often to museums and universities in Europe. The practice of taking Aboriginal skeletons and prisoners whose bodies were given to institutions upon their death has been described by leaders in Broome here in Australia as atrocious, appalling and traumatic. Vanessa Mills has this story. There's at least 16,000 Australian Aboriginal remains languishing in foreign archives. Anger and guilt must help inform us of the motives, purposes and outcomes from these atrocious activities from this shameful period. As part of Reconciliation Week, Nyambaburu Yaru launched an exhibition detailing what the German and British did in the 19th and 20th centuries in the Broome area. Corporation CEO Ninny Mills. I started crying. I cried and the tears fell like rain. I cried for my old people. I cried longing to bring them home. I cried for those who carry trauma of the past in their lives today. I cried because of the weight, the weight of trying to heal from the truth that others don't understand or won't accept. Only a single German university has returned the relics to the Yaru. English institutions have so far denied NBY's requests, such as to return the skull of Yaru leader Guadaman 
who was snatched alive from a broom beach in 1866 by a pastoralist and is kept in the Natural History Museum in London. You are gone in a physical sense from this world, but your spirit lives in us and you will never, ever be forgotten. The remains of 14 people, including a young girl and some showing head trauma, had been sold in 1894 by a broom perler and eventually ended up in storage at the Grassi Museum of Ethnology in Germany. Garajari Yaru leader Neil McKenzie was part of the group that travelled overseas to get his ancestors back. So it was shocking, it was very appalling, very traumatic for me. I've never experienced going to other country to get our people back, to bring them home. We're not allowed to cry, but you know my heart is in pain. This is why you see we have a lot of animosity, a lot of pain and hurt. Those bones were repatriated in 2018 and remain in storage in Perth until a suitable site inside the Broome Cemetery can be built. Dahlia Pigram read a speech on behalf of her grandfather, Senator Pat Dodson. Bringing our old people home requires us to properly care and look after them. Many we do not know, other more than that they were described as Yaru. What kinship group or part of the country they came from we are uncertain of. And even if we did know, it would not be safe to put them back without proper security. Our own special place in the Broome Cemetery is essential to accommodate these old people and we must move ahead with this as soon as possible. Neil McKenzie urged the huge crowd to build a positive community together. And I don't blame the, the people of today, the future we have here. I bring the past of how they thought they knew what they were doing was okay. Today we know it's otherwise. But we want to embrace humanity. We win harmony and peace. That's all we want. Have love for one another. The kind-hearted love. How we should be treating each other. A call echoed by NBY CEO Ninny Mills in her impassioned reconciliation speech. When the sun comes up, remember tomorrow when that sun shines, ask yourself what role will you play? What influence will you create? What legacy will you leave? When we know better, we should do better. In truth we heal. In unity we prosper. story there from Vanessa Mills from ABC's Kimberley Bureau. Hold the front page. It's that time where we find out what's been making headlines around the Pacific region. And to do that, we're joined by reporter and producer Nick Fogarty. Good morning, Nick. Morning, Priyanka. Um, now let's head to Fiji. We were just there earlier in the in the show for for, an, um, for a chat with our guest. Um, and since Fiji's elections, which took place late last year, there's been a lot of history being brought up again, and that includes the events of the 2000 coup led by George Spite. Why is he? Oh, Spate, sorry. Why is he back in the headlines? Yeah. Well, the 2000 coup leader George Spate has been serving time for the last 20 years, but now Fiji Village is reporting that. 
Abbott, he's applied for a presidential pardon as he wants to be released from prison uh, with the Attorney General and Chair of the Mercy Commission, Siromi Turunga, reportedly confirming that. Now, Fiji Village is reporting that in Spate's case, the Mercy process, which is under the 2013 Constitution, has gone through the Fiji Correction Service. Uh, the case management process for George Spate has been done through the judiciary and the Commission has had its meeting and a decision is expected from President Ratu Viliami Katonivere quite soon. Uh, of course, George Spate was convicted of treason and sentenced to death in February 2002, but that was later commuted to life in prison. Uh, which all came about after Spate led a group of armed men into the Parliament complex on May 19, 2000, which uh, many of the audience would remember very mm-hmm. vividly, I'm sure, uh, and taking the then Prime Minister Mahendra Chowdhury and his government hostage. Uh, and that hostage crisis lasted for 56 days. Yes, an incredible time and quite a, a tragic time when it came to Fiji's politics and um, democracy then. Um, and, yeah, very interesting to see, uh, I guess, uh, people who have um, had past convictions against them uh, sort of come back into the headlines um, looking for those convictions to be con- overturned or even people who've been in exile out of Fiji um, all as a result of, of, I guess, the new leadership and the new government uh, under Mr. Rambuka. Um, so interesting to see what will come out of Spate's case and, and um, yeah, what, what the president will, will rule on that. We will keep an eye. Um, now let's head uh, to Papua New Guinea. Well, we heard last week that Papua New Guinea and the United States signed a security pact. Um, that sparked some protests, particularly student protests in Ley. But now there are reportedly delays on another pact, one between PNG and Australia. What's happening there? Yes. So back in January, PNG and Australia pledged in a joint statement that they'd conclude substantive negotiations on this treaty by the end of April with Australian Defence Minister Richard Miles revealing that the treaty was likely to expand the two nations' partnership in areas including defence, security, visa processing and labour mobility. Uh, But Associated Press is now reporting that PNG's Prime Minister James Marape has said the treaty has been delayed and that Mr Marape had informed Richard Miles of that delay on the sidelines of the Korea-Pacific Islands summit in South Korea. Uh, Mr Marape told Mr Miles that the treaty is a work in progress, uh, which requires PNG to, quote, consult our democratic processes and sovereign laws in relation to certain wordings and provisions. Uh, Mr Marape then conveyed his apologies to uh, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese for that delay. Oh, interesting. There's been a a delay there. I wonder if some of that outrage around that um, United States and Papua New Guinea um, security pact um, might have led or contributed to some of these delays in this other pact between Australia and PNG. Um, I mean, who knows? Uh, we we don't know details, I guess, what's happening behind the scenes in PNG or Australia's side, but very interesting to see things slow down. I know there was particular interest in the visa processing that you mentioned there, um, Nick, that might be part of this um, treaty because obviously uh, I believe Papua New Guinea, uh, Guineans who want a visa need to send it over through to Australia and 
it takes, you know, sometimes months to receive a visa mm. just to get to Australia, despite the countries being so close. Um, and, you know, there were talks of setting up a visa processing site in Papua New Guinea. Um, so a shame that might be a delayed, but, um, but for some in Papua New Guinea, but we'll see what happens with this treaty and if, if a new one gets minted and, and signed. Um, now, let's stay in Papua New Guinea. Nick, uh, patients at the Port Mosby General Hospital are reportedly complaining of constant shortages of certain drugs. Well, I hope they're not common ones. Uh, well, unfortunately, it looks like they may be. Um, oh the PNG Post Courier is reporting that patients seeking health services at Port Moresby General have been complaining that they're not getting basic medical drugs like Panadol, Panadine, chloroquine, um, other antibiotics, uh, while gloves and catheters and laboratory reagents are also in short supply. Oh one patient in their report has urged government MPs to go and spend some days in the hospital to see what it's like. Uh, in response to these complaints, the hospital CEO, Dr Paki Malumi, has said they do understand the shortage is an ongoing issue, uh, but they have improved their supply system a couple of weeks ago and that they are seeing improvement in their communication. So um, maybe we'll see if those complaints continue from patients. Yes, indeed. Well, hopefully they do ease up. Um, but yeah, very concerning that it got to the point, um, if the report is right, that, as you said, very basic things like gloves, Panadol, um, are in short supply. You know, you'd hope it wouldn't get to that stage. But um, yes, hopefully it does get remedied very, very soon. Um, now, Nick, let's head to some sporting news. There's been some more results on the international rugby front overnight. What's happened? Yes, the Oceania Rugby Women's Championship is in full flight on the Gold Coast and it's the Fijiana 15s who remain undefeated after they knocked over Tonga last night, 45-12. to 12. Uh, FBC yeah. News is reporting that the Fijiana were well ahead at half-time, leading 21-7 to 7 after tries to Vani Arai, Rajeli Daviua on her birthday, and then Ana Maria Naimasi uh, before Tonga went over five minutes before the break. In the second half, uh, Tongan fans will have been happy with their start. They pulled it back to 26 to 12. Oh, wow. But then Fiji really took over and Davioa ended up with a double and Naimasi with a hat-trick. And uh, in the other match last night, it was a dominant performance by the Manusina from Samoa, bowling over PNG 83 to 0. So Samoa and Fiji really showing themselves to be the top contenders there after big wins in their first round matches uh, before that. Yeah, some great results there. Yeah, as you said, for, for Fiji and Samoa at least. Um, yeah, I guess I guess some birthday luck for Davewa might have um, given her some 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 mm. and, and her team some luck uh, during the during the match. Um, Nick, thank you for those stories. Thanks, Priyanka. That was Nick Fogarty bringing us the latest from around the region. And don't go anywhere. Coming up, we'll be speaking to a youth climate activist about what he wants to see in the upcoming uh, International Court of Justice ruling or advisory opinion on climate change. Do stick around for that. ABC Radio Australia brings you great sporting rivalry with State of Origin. Picked up beautifully off the bounce by Combo. Put to the stat kick. Wow, what a try! This year promises to be a cracking series. Clicks up to this go. Big, big, big. The human pinball mobile. 
State of Origin, Wednesday, 7pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia, your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Loving rugby league in 2023. Indeed, you are listening to ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Imagine now a world of Pacifica people in space. Pacifica futurism is a genre of science fiction being pioneered by Gina Cole, a queer Fijian New Zealand lawyer turned author. Gina's latest novel, Naviro, features Pacifica characters and explores the role of traditional knowledge and culture in a futuristic world. Gina says that science fiction gives her an opportunity to critique and challenge colonialism in our world. I wanted to see myself represented in science fiction, but there were no stories about queer Fijian women flying spaceships. So I took Toni Morrison's advice. Um, She said if there's a book you want to read, but it has not been written, then you must write it. So <laughs> I thought, I'll write, I'll write that book that I want to read. <laughs> um, what sort of prompted your decision to leave law and go into writing? Well, I've always written. I've always been a writer. I've always written, but it was kind of like a, a hobby, something I did on the side. And I didn't really get serious about writing until about 2009 when I enrolled to do a, a Master's of Creative Writing at Auckland University. Out of that course, I wrote a book of short stories called Black Ice Matter. They are stories with a focus on Pacific themes. And that book won in 2017. It won an award at the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards for Best First Book of Fiction. That same year, I decided to to start a PhD in creative writing. And so I tried to be a full-time barrister and a full-time PhD student for one year. And I realized it didn't work. One of them, I had to pick one. And I thought I could always go back to the law if I wanted to. So I decided to continue with my PhD in creative writing and I closed my legal practice. And um, out of my PhD came my book, Navero, which was published last year. Could you tell us a little bit more about the story behind um, the novel? Okay, the story is set hundreds of years in the future when space travel is happening and Pacific people end up in space because they're naturally very good navigators. It's a story about a young Fijian, Tongan, Majuran woman who flies into space to save her sister from a whirlpool. At the heart of the story are Pacific women. So you mentioned a little bit the parallels between ocean and space, but that's a big theme that sort of emerges in your work? Yes, I kind of use the metaphor of there being an ocean in space and a galaxy in the ocean, and that those two realms can be navigated using wayfinding techniques. Wayfinding and waka building have had this incredible resurgence. So I kind of look to that ability to revive and recover our cultural knowledge that may have been lost due to colonialism as one of the aspects of Pacifica futurism and and one of the great things about science fiction where you you can use it as a tool to recover our ancient ancestral knowledge. Science fiction and Pacific cultures are sort of an innovative mix. How did you end up bringing these two subject matters together? Well, I am a real science fiction nerd. I grew up in the 1970s watching lots of um, science fiction on television like um, Star Trek and The Land of the Giants and Lost in Space and Doctor Who and that sort of thing. My favourite was Star Trek. And I was a real fan of Lieutenant Uhura and Nichelle Nichols, who played her. Lieutenant Uhura was the only black woman on television at the time, and she was a communications officer on a spaceship, and she was in constant dialogue with Captain Kirk. It wasn't unusual for me to see a black woman and a white man in conversation because my 
my mum is Fijian and my father is white. But I didn't see any other women of colour on television or anywhere else in cultural production at the time. It remains the case today that, that there's not much representation of us either on television or movies or books about science fiction in any, in any case. And I wanted that to change. So when I enrolled to do a PhD in creative writing, I decided to write about science fiction and specifically science fiction from a Pacific Ocean point of view. Um, and during my research, I discovered Afrofuturism and Indigenous futurism. And those kinds of genre written by Indigenous people inspired me to formulate a, a, a genre of science fiction fantasy which I call Pacifica Futurism, which is basically science fiction fantasy written by Pacifica writers featuring Pacifica characters and culture. What is your hope with the Pacifica Futurism genre? Are you looking to get more Pacifica writers interested? Are you hoping to inspire a new generation with an interest in science fiction and interest in space? What's the future looking like? I think it's inevitable, really, that other Pacific writers will, will you know, because we all love, well, I don't know, I'm, I'm biased. I love science fiction, but you know, lots of Pacific people love science fiction mm. movies. And I, I just think, I, I hope, yeah, it inspires other Pacifica writers out there to, to write about science fiction from an Indigenous Pacific point of view. Do you have any advice to aspiring Pacific authors? Just write lots and have fun with it and <laughs> get your stories out there because we need more. We need to tell our own stories. We need to write ourselves into existence in these genre, in these canons. That was Gina Cole, Pacifica author and pioneer of Pacifica futurism, speaking there with our reporter, Yasmin Wright-Gittins. You're listening to Pacific Beat this Wednesday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. A youth climate justice handbook has been launched to help states make submissions on behalf of young people to the world's highest court, the International Court of Justice, on the issue of climate change. It's part of the campaign to get the court to produce an accurate advisory opinion on climate change that considers Pacific Islander voices. To talk more about what youth climate justice looks like in the Pacific, we have joining us Dylan Carver from Fiji and Tonga, who's a youth activist. Uh, Yandra Vanaka, Dylan. Bula Priyanka. Um, so uh, the Pacific is often seen as this, you know, faraway place, um, particularly in the climate uh, change conversation. Can you start by telling us, Dylan, what are some of the misconceptions about Pacific Islands and its people when it comes to climate change? Um, I think the the biggest misconception, you know, that I've experienced is, you know, the thought and feeling that we're we're helpless, um, that the Pacific is helpless, and um, and that we are looking to the global north for salvation. Um, you know, we're we're not begging; <laughs> we're asking for countries to take accountability. And there's a a stark difference there. And, you know, I often think that to say that Pacific Islanders um, are helpless is, you know, ignoring the fact that Pacific Island nations have been at the forefront of international climate negotiations, um, advocating for stronger climate action. I think it also ignores the fact that, you know, our communities are integrating indigenous knowledge and practices into our own climate change res- uh, responses, um, highlighting, you know, our resilience and our adaptability uh, of our communities. Um, I think it also, you know, ignores that the many innovative solutions that actually come out of the Pacific uh, and the leadership 
foresight and ambition that Pacific leaders continue to show um, the world time and time again. Yes, and part of those uh, ambitious um, steps taken uh, by Pacific leaders is this campaign to get the ICJ to consider climate change, which it is now doing. It, it did pass the UN vote, and now it's expected to provide an advisory opinion on climate change. What what would you like to see in that advisory opinion? I understand, you know, as I mentioned, there's this Youth Climate Justice Handbook. What, what do you think, particularly as a young person, do you want to see the ICJ um, say in their opinion? You know, for what the advisory opinion is attempting to do is it's attempting to marry environmental law um, and human rights law because, you know, it's recognizing that these two pieces of legislations or bodies of legislations have been developed in silos for such a long time. And, you know, the, the advisory opinion is really about intergenerational equity. It's about human rights and it's about environmental law. And, you know, the, the UN, uh, the uh, International Court of Justice is the only is the only principal uh, organ of the UN that is actually yet to weigh in on the climate change issue. So, mm. you know, this is an opportunity for the International Court of Justice to weigh in. Um, and that's, you know, that really is the crux of um, what this advisory opinion is seeking to do. And, you know, you mentioned the, the launch of the, the Youth Climate Justice Handbook. And, you know, it's with this handbook, this handbook actually um, gives the youth and uh, civil society voice uh, in terms of the submission process, it's offering the youth and Pacific civil society call for climate justice generally by discussing the most optimally progressive legal arguments relating to the request for an advisory opinion. So, you know, we're giving states all of the knowledge, all of the arguments, all of the legal arguments um, to make their submissions because um, only states are actually able to make submissions in this process. And so, yeah, we basically collected all of these legal arguments um, and are presenting them to countries to make a submission on their own. Mm. I mean, because I guess the handbook does focus on, on the youth voice. Do you think, Dylan, that young people see the question of climate change differently to older generations? I think we do. Um, I think, you know, young people... Um, are more aware of the intergenerational equity lens. Um, and, you know, we always use this analogy of, um, of using the knowledge and experiences of our elders, but a lot of the change and a lot of the movement and a lot of the innovation is powered by the young people. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's elements like this, like the ICGO uh, advisory opinion that uh, brings this to light. You know, young people see what is at stake and young people are coming up with innovative solutions that are against the status quo, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, the, it's the urgency that is really driving uh, young people to, to action. Mm. Well, what do some of those innovative solutions uh, look like, Dylan? Do you have any examples to share? Yeah, so, I mean, first and foremost, the advisory opinion, the campaign for an advisory opinion from the ICJ uh, on climate change is one of probably the most uh, obvious. But there's also other um, elements. You know, we have the Cure Climate Emergency Declaration, 
um, which was developed last year. And this is recognizing that, you know, the Pacific is already going through uh, loss and damage. And we can no longer wait, you know, for funds to be mobilized for loss and damage. So what we're doing is we're mobilizing funds ourselves for our communities. So it's really initiatives like this. Um, you also have, um, you know, frontline truths. It's about narrative building. You know, for far too long, the Pacific has been um, pigeonholed into the victim um, category. And it's about narrative building. So you have the the 350 Pacific have come up with a campaign called Frontline Truths, which tells stories, yes, of impacts, but also of resilience. And that really is, you know, uh, the, the types of things that we're seeing coming out of the Pacific. Mm, it's like what you were saying before, you know, the the Pacific isn't just there to get a helping hand from from um, the northern countries, but it's it's there to, uh, to you know, come up with solutions itself. Um, if you are just joining us here on Pacific Beat, we are speaking to Dylan Carver. He's a youth climate justice advocate. And we're talking about um, this uh, justice handbook that has been launched to help states make submissions on behalf of young people to the ICJ as they come to an advisory opinion on climate change. But we're speaking more generally about the, I guess, the youth, um, the youth sort of perspective on climate change as well. And Dylan, on that, because you you were 11 years old when you started as an activist, uh, activist and as an advocate. You were really not only just engaged in climate, as we've been talking about, but as well as in Fijian politics. Do you see the two things linked, politics and climate change? I definitely think that they're linked. And I think, you know, activism has really placed politics and climate change in my life. You know, it was through my activism. So I started off at the age of 11 um, as a child's rights activist with Save the Children Fiji and working with Save the Children Fiji. Um, And it helped me realize that, you know, from a very young age, it helped me realize the importance of politics um, in ushering in any type of change that we want to see. And it's something that's actually stuck with, stuck with me and something that I've carried with me since. And so, you know, when it comes to climate change work um, and advocacy, I think it's important to understand the political landscape. And, you know, by understanding the political landscape, it allows us to identify entry points and pressure points. Um, so, yeah, you know, politics is, I think, in my opinion, def- inextricably linked to climate change. And it's also you know, just central to our everyday life. You know, it's it's what determines the price of food, public transport, fish licensing, social welfare. All of these are important. So, you know, I would, you know, warn against totally disengaging from politics and use it as a tool um, to usher in the change that we want. Yeah. Mm. And, and a lot of the times, and this is the thing as well, um, you know, a lot of the times, you know, we, Pacific young people, don't want to be activists. It's not out of choice. Um, and it is, it's actually out of necessity because, you know, if we don't do it, if we don't fight for it, if we don't offer our voices, then who will be there on our behalf? So it's all, it's about capturing all of those tools and using it in whatever movement building, whatever narrative building that you're doing. Yes, well, it is um, nice to hear that um, perspective, Dylan, particularly when so many young people are so disengaged. Well, not just young people. I guess I think a lot of people are disengaged from politics these days. Um, so yes. it's, it's, it's nice to hear that you, you see, still see a role for politicians and political campaigns. 
Um, but I wanted to ask you maybe a bit of a tricky question then, because there has been some controversy around the upcoming climate change conference that's being held in the United Arab Emirates. I know you've en- en- attended some of those COP summits um, to as part of your youth activism on climate change. Um, but yes, there has been co- a controversy here. UAE, a, a massive um, oil producing country. It's also being presided over by the head of an oil company as well. Um, have you been following some of this controversy? Have, will you be attending this conference um, later on this year? You know, for us, it's it's about balance. It's it's a balancing act, you know. And you know, presence is so important. Um, but then, at the same time, do we want to be validating? You know, a presidency that doesn't seem to be, that seems to be shifting the responsibility of fossil fuel, the demand side of fossil fuel, as opposed to, you know, the producing side of fossil fuel. And so, you know, there are a number of um, Pacific organizations that are considering this question. And I know Diva for Equality here in Fiji has already, you know, determined that they will not be participating in COP. Um, And that's a discussion that, you know, a lot of the the activists and climate change organizations and NGOs in the Pacific are having. Um, And it's actually an important conversation, but really it's about, you know, last year there was at COP in Egypt, Mm -hmm. there was this discussion about how uh, Greta Thunberg was, was boycotting COP as well. And, you know, the, the stance that we took is, you know, it's also a privilege to not engage for Pacific Island activists we don't have any option. We need to use every single opportunity, every single platform available to us. But it is a decision that takes a lot of consideration. And I think, you know, as we move closer towards COP later this year, I think more of those types of discussions will come to the fore. Um, But it definitely is a conversation that we're having here in the Pacific. Yes, very interesting. Dylan, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. Thank you for having me. That was Dylan Akave, youth climate justice activist, speaking to us there from Fiji. For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And with that, we are almost to the end of this episode of Pacific Beat. Just a reminder of our top story of the day. More than 100 of Australia's cultural and ethnic organisations are calling on their communities to vote yes in the Indigenous Voice referendum, having signed a joint resolution to back it. Among them is Bella Swan, a member of the Pacific Communities Council of Far North Queensland, who spoke to us on the Pacific community's response to The Voice. Most of our Pacific Islander nation people are shocked that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not recognising the supreme law of, of Australia in terms of the constitution. And if you want to catch up on that story or anything else, head to the ABC Pacific website and you can find all our stories there. That's it for me for this Wednesday morning, but I'll be back tomorrow at the same time, same place. Can't wait to see you then.